Let's pray. Our Father, we gather ourselves to be given your name. Before you redeemed us, we were scattered, confused about the meaning of our lives. Before you redeemed us, we were slaves to sin and hostile toward righteousness. But in your glorious plan of redemption, you did not leave us nameless, scattered, and enslaved. By giving us your name, you have united us together in Christ, a bond that gets stronger and stronger as we treasure Christ more and more in our lives. By giving us your name, you have given our lives meaning to make your name great in the world through our endurance in faith and preparation in holiness for your return. Lord, we need your mercy for the times and ways that we've slandered your name. Our affections have been divided. We've valued the perishable things of the world more than we value you. We have not followed the command to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've been selfish, elevating our desires over the desires of others. We've not followed the command that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we call on your mercy, confident in the generous forgiveness offered through Christ's death and resurrection. Our gratefulness for your forgiveness is as great as our need for it. Father, we thank you that this church is not alone in taking on your name and bringing glory to you. We thank you for Temple Philadelphia and Pastor Marcel in Ouagadougou, and for the other churches and pastors we partner with there. We ask that you would protect them on every front. Protect them from the jihadist attacks that apply untold pressure to renounce you. Give them endurance and supernatural, unshakable trust in you. Let them know that you are the true Lord of the universe, and you will vindicate them because your name is on them. We ask that you would also provide for them. Lord, supply the food that they need. And when, and when this church and other churches practice generosity, let the provision multiply so that they would know our unity with them in Christ, and that they would know your goodness, and that conversions would happen, that your enemies would see the truth and love of your people in community, and that they would be changed. Lord, we thank you for the love that has been shown and shared with the kids of this church through the Solace System Camp this past week. Thank you for all of the volunteers who glorified you by spending their time and energy teaching and caring for the children of this church. Bless everyone that served. Encourage them that their efforts are for you, and you will be faithful to give growth through your Holy Spirit. We ask that all of the effort would pay dividends, and that the kids of this church would grow up with Christ as the foundation of their lives, so that no storm can shake them. Father, we're excited for our brother and sister, Hans and Kelly, as they start a sabbatical from their work here. We pray that you would give them a deep and lasting understanding of Sabbath during this time. Thank you for providing other pastors and skilled people to care for this church while they rest in you. Bless their time as a family. Give them opportunity for fruitful conversation and fellowship together. And help all of us to rest more and more in you and your rule. We ask now that you would feed us, not with bread or water, but with your very words. Let your word preach to us, nourish our souls with encouragement to endure, conviction of sin that leads to holiness, and, and most of all, the assurance that you are coming to gather us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Amen. You can have a seat. 
And you can open up to the end of your Bible. Revelation 22, starting in verse 8. We'll start in verse 6, but our text will be from verses 8 through 21. There's a great American poet and author named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's a fantastic name for any of you expecting children. (laughs) Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was once quoted as saying, Great is the art of the beginning, but greater is the art of the ending. You see, anyone can start a story. Anyone can write the middle of a story. But the trick in putting together something that stands the test of time is found in the ending. That is perhaps the most amazing thing about the book of Revelation. For it holds the position of the ending, if you will, of Scripture, and yet it is authored by its original author so well that it's not actually an ending at all. It's an invitation to take part in the rest of the story that it assures will come to pass. Now, as we've seen over the last 10 months, Revelation is written as a book that stands outside of the constraints of time. It is a book that first draws on the past through visions of the Jewish prophets initially intended to speak to the church of the first century. It speaks to the past. But then it's also a book that gives motivation and endurance and application to every local church the world over through time and space in the midst of our present circumstances. It speaks to the present. And lastly, Revelation points forward to a future heaven and earth and an eternity in intimate communion with Christ that gives us hope beyond comprehension. It speaks to the future. As an example of its timeliness, we can remember that Revelation was originally written as a letter to cycle through the seven churches in Asia Minor that we learned about in chapters 2 and 3. But if you were to go today to the location of those seven cities mentioned in those chapters, what you would find is ruins of once thriving towns replaced perhaps by another town. And yet, Revelation and Scripture as a whole stands as an everlasting witness to the God that does not change and is authority over all time. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Revelation is a book that, while difficult to interpret and understand at points, it's also standing firm in providing every Christian and every local church throughout the church age with truth, clarity, and application. It is that application that we can use to faithfully await the return of our Savior, You see, we've been invited in to do just that. And we can do this while standing firm in the midst of a chaotic world that wants to pull us away from him. And so this morning, we've come to the last portion of Revelation. In October of last year, we started in the first chapter. We saw the introduction of the revelation of Jesus as Savior and enthroned King. And it was there that we learned that there was a transmission of these visions that went from God the Father all the way down through Christ to his angelic messenger, then to the Apostle John, and then to his servants, the church. 
And then we looked into chapters 2 and 3, and we got the exhortations of Christ given directly to the seven churches in Asia Minor. But in so doing, he was giving those same exhortations to all of us. And the visions that followed were for all of us throughout the church age. And now, similarly, as we close out the book, Jesus, through John, gives final exhortations to the listening church. Throughout this epilogue, or this conclusion of the book, John provides quick glimpses backward in the book that we can use to review the application that we have been given throughout. And so I've entitled today's closing sermon with the call that Revelation gives to any and every local church that exists because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Church, arise. Jesus is coming. Church, arise. Jesus is coming. And so I hope today, if you have been following along, that everything flows clearly for you. You will see a reminder and review of these application points that we've covered throughout. If you are a person who's struggled with looking at the symbolism and you've needed more application, well, today is your day because <laughs> it's all application. And so get your pens ready and your notebooks, and we're going to go through those final exhortations. There's eight of them, so there's a lot but we won't spend too much time on any one of them. We will break them all down, and you can write them down and use them to encourage yourself from here on out. So let's first read our text for this morning, and then we will see what we are called to as we await our Savior's return. Let's read, starting in verse 6 of chapter 22. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates." Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Anybody else pause for a second after we said amen, come Lord Jesus, to see if it actually worked? <laughs> right? Was this the moment? Yeah. 
That's what I do when I read this. I pause because I'm waiting. We finished last week looking at verses 6 and 7. As Christ says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And this is meant to bookend the entire book as a whole as it repeats what Jesus said in Revelation 1.3. There he said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, we have spent so much time trying to step across the gap of time and space and cultural context and Old Testament uh, symbolism. We've spent a ton of energy in understanding that uh, symbolism and figurative nature of Revelation. And so these words of Christ that we are to keep the words of Revelation might almost cause us to question how we apply this book. We've been so focused on things like symbolism uh, that we've almost maybe even missed it at times. Or we've seen that it is indeed symbolic, we've seen that it is full of visions, and we've seen the structure as that of a corkscrew revisiting the view of certain events from different vantage points. But that may have distracted us at points from the commands and exhortations that are implicit within this book. So again, let's take our text and look at the final eight reminders that put an exclamation mark on what we've been taught throughout. The first thing as we await the return of Jesus, the first thing that we're called to is number one, to worship the Lamb in all his glory. Worship the Lamb in all his glory. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Let's go ahead and read them again, even though we just read them. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John closes this book as he opens it, noting that he is the one who was blessed with the visions. And these visions were so overwhelming that he fell down in worship at the feet of the angelic messenger. And we can only guess at how overpowering these visions were, but we get a slight glimpse in the fact that this is now the second time he's done this. His memory is very short. The first was after the vision of the prostitute of Babylon, the counterfeit community of those allegiant to Satan's kingdom of darkness. Here, John has just gone through the vision instead of the beautiful bride of Christ. And he again is so overwhelmed that he falls down in worship of the angel a second time. He's a typical guy. He sees beautiful women and he just forgets himself, right? But again, the angel makes it clear to him. This set of visions is meant to bring worship to God and him alone. It is not meant to elicit worship for the angels, It is not meant to elicit worship for the earthly messenger or even the one that preaches it. It is not meant to elicit worship for the visions themselves or the timeline that it might suggest or anything else. These visions are meant to elicit worship of God, specifically Christ alone. This book is the revelation of Jesus This has been clear from the very beginning. In chapters 4 and 5, we were introduced to the throne room of heaven, and we saw the Ancient of Days, Father God, seated on the throne, with myriads of every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping before him, and we heard that worship. But then we turned to look with John after hearing the worship, and what we saw was this lamb slain on our behalf as the sacrifice that ransomed us and all the church from the kingdom of darkness, and he was seated on the throne. It is because of his work that all of us sing a new song of praise. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Because of the work of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross in our place, because of his victorious resurrection from the dead, proving that he defeated sin and death and hell, and because of his enthronement as king over the cosmos, you and I have been made new. And we have been ordained as priests to issue forth worship and praise to the Lamb in all that we are as the church and all that we do in loving one another and proclaiming his gospel. This happens in the midst of our individual prayer lives and devotional lives. It happens as we stand firm for truth in the midst of a world that is bought into the deception of Satan. But it also happens as we lay down our lives in reflection of Christ for one another each and every day. When we lay aside ourselves so that Christ may get the glory, that is worship. And every Sunday we assemble together as the people of God, present on earth but also enrolled in heaven, and we give a preview of the throne room of Christ. Maybe not the seats or the lighting or the warehouse, but the people and the worship of the Lamb that will happen for eternity. There we will gather with our brothers and sisters from the church through all time and all space and sing praise to the Lamb for what he has done because then we will see it in its fullness. Friends, until the Lord returns, we are to worship the Lamb in all his glory. Well, next we see in verses 10 through 11 that we are reminded to stay alert and discern Reality. Let's go ahead and read those, verses 10 through 11. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Stay alert and discern reality. The angel is communicating the nature of Revelation and how important and different this book is. It's a very different book. I've been teaching through the New Testament to a class up at Western Seminary, and all of the slides for all the other books, they're pretty simple. We get to this book, and like we've been doing, there's a lot of slides. It's a difficult book at points to understand. But even though it's in the literary genre of apocalyptic literature, just as the prophets were, this book is to be different. It's not intended to stay mysterious and vague but rather it's intended to be opened up and studied and understood by every generation of Christians until the Lord returns. Friends, can I just encourage you, if this was your first time through Revelation and you're feeling like you were stuck in week two, it's okay. If you're a person who's been through Revelation, but we went through it in such a different way than you've ever heard it before, it's okay. Keep reading it. Keep studying it. For the blessing that is promised is from Jesus who is faithful. It's not dependent upon your intellect or your energy. It's dependent upon Jesus. Keep studying it. It is a book that is intended to be opened up and understood by every generation of Christians until the Lord returns. And this language that he uses here in Revelation, it comes straight out of the book of Daniel where he is told a similar thing. In Daniel, Dave Jacobson just read it to us. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, 
and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. There Daniel is told to seal up the prophecy of, of the book because there's still much to happen. Much to happen like the coming of the Messiah and the initiation of his people. But here in Revelation, Christ has accomplished his work and his people are already being drawn into his kingdom. We now are simply waiting for the last of his elect to be drawn to the church and the last of the martyrs to be drawn to Christ in death. And when that happens, friends, Christ will return, resurrect the dead, judge mankind, and establish the new heaven and new earth. In other words, nothing else needs to happen. Christ's return is imminent in terms of the redemptive timeline. It is the next thing. Jesus is coming, so we must stay alert. Let's not be found asleep or unprepared like those in the parable of the second reading that we heard. The call to unseal the prophecy is the opposite of Daniel. And so we are called to stay alert and to understand that Christ is coming. But then like Daniel, this exhortation comes to pursue righteousness and holiness rather than be evildoers pursuing evil and filth. A pretty obvious command from Christ. Don't be evil, <laughs> be righteous. But throughout Revelation, we have seen warfare that originates in the spiritual realm but plays itself out in the earthly realm. On the one side, there's the unholy trinity of Satan, the beastly worldly kingdoms, and the false prophet of economic prosperity all working together to lure in the deceived to be a community of earth dwellers destined for judgment. On the other hand, we've had God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together to redeem and ransom those written in the Lamb's book of life since the world was formed. And through Revelation, the veil of satanic deception has been pulled back, and we saw that these are at war in the midst of the current age. And this warfare will not cease until Christ's return. And so we need to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word and the security of the thread of orthodoxy throughout history that runs through God's people. And we must realize that we need one another to help us so that we don't fall into the pride of self-deception, hearing the voices of the world and allowing them to turn our hearts from the truth of God and his word. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to be tempted by politics, by wealth, entertainment, and false theology. Until the Lord returns, not only must we worship the Lamb, but we must stay alert and discern reality. We must stay alert and discern reality. The reality that behind what we see, there is a spiritual warfare going on, and Revelation has given us insight into that. Well, third, what we learned in Revelation is that we're called to endure suffering while trusting in God's sovereignty. Endure suffering while trusting in God's sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, this is perhaps uh, one of the biggest themes outside of worshiping the Lamb. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. <clears throat> Jesus again reminds us that he is coming soon. He says this multiple times in our section today. And as we noted last week, this is not soon in terms of chronological quantity, 
but more so a statement of imminence with regard to our place in redemptive history. And when he comes, Jesus is coming as final judge and authority to repay each and every human and each and every nation for how we have all lived. For those who have evidenced the regeneration of our hearts by pursuing Christ and his law, we are covered by his grace and have been adopted into his family. The actions of our life that trend towards obedience are simply proof that Christ has saved us by his grace, not our own works, but Christ has saved us and our hearts have responded in activity. Now, for those who have spent their life in rebellion against God, however, they will receive the penalty for their rebellion. And when fears of falling away or turning our back on Christ come about, or fears that we will be overwhelmed by suffering and persecution, when they come, we can look to the fact that Christ was introduced as the one outside of time. He is the sovereign one. Just as the Alpha and Omega are the characters at the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet, Jesus is the author of the created cosmos, and he is the one that will end time as we know it with his coming judgment. And he will then initiate a new heaven and a new earth in which we will dwell. Because of his death and resurrection, we need not fear anything, including sickness or death. He has made us more than conquerors because we have been assured new life in him. And he has proven this new life by his own resurrection. He will bring all things into judgment so he can vindicate his saints and remove those who refuse his reign. And we can be assured that no fiery trial that comes our way is a surprise to him. He will simply use them to mold us into his image. Friends, until the Lord returns, we can endure suffering while trusting in God's sovereignty. We can worship the Lamb in all his glory, we can stay alert and discern reality, and we can endure suffering while trusting in God's sovereignty. Amen? Amen. Fourth, we can pursue purity amidst compromise. We are called to pursue purity amidst compromise. Let's read verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Here we have a beatitude of Christ, similar to how he lays out the beatitudes at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those. In Revelation 7, 14, we're told how we are going to wash our robes. It says there that the saints have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John is told that this is how the saints purify themselves. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The death of Jesus Christ in our place has washed us and made us pure. <clears throat> it is an act accomplished by his grace alone. Nothing we have earned, nothing we have gained by our own work. And because of that purity that has been given to us by his forgiveness and his righteousness, we may enter into intimate unity with him and his people as pictured in the last two chapters of Revelation. Our original father, Adam, was barred by his sin from the eternal life found in unity with God in the garden. But because of the better second Adam, the obedient Jesus, we may approach God and take freely from his offer of eternal life. Because of Jesus Christ, 
and his perfect obedience even unto death, we have been reconciled to God, never to be turned aside again. We may enter by the way that was once denied to us because of our sin, and we can join together with his people through baptism and the ongoing remembrance of communion, encouraging one another in our fight for purity and holiness, because we in that fight are the new Jerusalem, the very city in which the gates are open. And as part of the new Jerusalem, founded on the apostles' teaching, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, we can enter into covenant unity with one another. And by the Holy Spirit that joins us together, we can be there to encourage one another and hold one another accountable when self-delusion sets in. And we find ourselves elevating our own feelings as Lord instead of Christ. But as we purpose, purposefully disciple one another in this church, through the good and the bad, we are in essence linking arms and helping one another fight against temptation and the draw of the world. But with hearts willing to lay down our lives in submission to each other, we can help one another pursue purity amidst the compromise we see elsewhere in the world and even the so-called church. Until the Lord's return, we need to pursue purity amidst the compromise we see around us. Amen? Amen. Next, we see that until Christ's return, we are exhorted to stand fast in the fight against hypocrisy. Stand fast in the fight against hypocrisy. And this is primarily within the church. Let's read verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Sorry, dog lovers. I know that's offensive. <laughs> Just as in chapter 21... We see another statement about the theme throughout Revelation of the contrast between those at home on the earth and those at home in heaven. This imagery was noted time and time again as we saw the saints being persecuted as the symbolic Jerusalem while, watching the world, uh, while the watching world rejoiced at their persecution. And that was juxtaposed with the worldly Babylon being judged by God and the saints in heaven rejoicing in worship because justice had been done. These are the contrasts that we saw throughout. When Jesus addressed the seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3, he noted multiple times that there are those within the church assemblies who were not regenerate, not converted, and therefore were propagating false theology and deception in allegiance to the father of lies. And friends, we've seen throughout that that is a message for us today. Those of us who are part of what's called the invisible church in Reformed theology are those who have regenerate hearts, and we are amongst the visible church full of people, both regenerate and non-regenerate. And so when we talk about Christianity, that's what we're talking about, is a person with a converted heart. And so those who are unconverted that are part of the church will often bring in that deception. And so here, once again, Jesus is declaring the exclusive nature of the gospel to warn those who may exist in their professed Christianity in arrogance and pride to instead wake up and realize that unless they bear fruit in keeping with repentance, unless they lay down their life in submission to Christ and his people, they may well be part of this listing of those who practice falsehood. Because to proclaim Christ with words, but deny him by actions and deny him by a lack of submission to him and his people, well, that is in and of itself falsehood. And so we must be those, dear brothers and sisters, who heed the warning given throughout Revelation, never taking for granted those that are around us, never 
allowing the leaven of sin in our midst without lovingly calling for repentance and never thinking that someone else will be responsible for my brother or sister in their walk with Christ. The church is imperfect in our current state, yes, but we must never let this be a reason to relax in our leading one another toward holiness. Amen? Amen. Until Christ returns, we need to stand fast in the fight against hypocrisy within the church. We need to worship the Lamb in all His glory. We need to stay alert and discern reality. We need to endure suffering while trusting in God's sovereignty. We need to pursue purity amidst compromise. And we need to stand fast in the fight against hypocrisy. Well, next we see the example of Jesus that calls us to follow as we testify as King Jesus testified. Take a look at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Here we notice the ultimate author of the book of Revelation, the author of the visions themselves, declaring that he is the one who sent the angel that has been the primary messenger to John throughout the book. And notice who he's speaking to, the churches. And not just the churches in chapters 2 and 3, but every local church that exists in his name. He's giving testimony to the church because in the end, that is who we are preaching the gospel to, the church. You see, from Jesus' standpoint, evangelism is the announcement of his installation as king to those that are his true citizens. They just don't know it yet. That's what evangelism is. From Jesus' standpoint, he has already known, elected, and written that person's name in his book of life since before the world began. We are merely the means by which his announcement goes out to draw that person into his kingdom. So when we go and preach the gospel to the non-believing world, because that's what we're doing as Christians, amen? When we go and preach the gospel to the non-believing world, those that will hear it are his sheep who hear his voice and follow the great shepherd. And he is the one who testifies of the truth, and by giving his church his spirit, we are empowered as well to announce the news of his death, resurrection, and enthronement as king. And that is the message that he has been testifying in the entirety of Revelation, that he is enthroned, and that is the message that we are to take to the surrounding world. Jesus of Nazareth has died. Jesus of Nazareth has risen. And Jesus is coming again. He is the Messiah that humanity has been looking for to save us from our sins. He is the great Messiah that comes from the line of David. He is the bright morning star. And now we await his return as our judge and king. Brothers and sisters, just because Christ is the one that saves and Christ is the one that regenerates by his spirit does not mean that we are to believe that we have no part in evangelism. No, we are now the body of Christ incarnate on earth as his church, and so each of us, as we live our lives under his lordship, we should be so attractive to those around us who are Christ but don't know it yet that they are drawn to him and his people through us. It's kind of like when I walk around Burkina Faso and I hear everybody talking in Moray and French and everything else, but I go into a store and I hear five aisles over, someone say an American term, I'm sprinting over to find that person. And I don't even know them yet. And I'm like, hey, you're from America, right? And they're like, yeah, where are you from? Bangor, Maine. I'm like, I'm right around the corner in Oregon. 
That's awesome, right? Because we know we're from the same nation. Friends, when we go and proclaim the gospel, the truth that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, and Jesus is coming again, those who are his sheep say, that sounds familiar. I don't know why, but something in my heart tells me that's truth. And so that's what we do when we go and preach. We draw those around us to be part of this new Jerusalem. And our love for one another, when they show up, is a show of a compelling community of the Spirit, and it should cement their belief that there is indeed something supernatural about the gospel we proclaim. This is the picture that's been provided throughout Revelation. And so, friends, until Jesus returns, we need to testify, just as our King has testified, by giving of our very lives to His Lordship so that we might proclaim Him as our King. Friends, the watching world knows what it looks like for Jesus to be your king and for you to not be Lord of your life. Is that what they see in your life or do there need to be adjustments? Well, the next statement we see is the church's response to Jesus' words empowered by the spirit that dwells within us. And in this interaction, we're reminded that until Christ returns, we are also supposed to participate as the spirit adorns the bride for the wedding day. We see this in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We see here that we are to participate as the Spirit adorns the bride for the wedding day. We have been learning over the last few weeks and have seen previews even before of this work that God is doing in adorning his bride, the church, to prepare us for the eventual marriage feast of the Lamb. You guys wrapped your brain around that, that when the Bible talks about the bride, that is us? It's hard to understand, isn't it? But that's who we are. And he's preparing us for this great marriage feast. And these words show a longing, a longing for the return of the bridegroom. The spirit that dwells amidst the bride of the church says, Lord, Come. And each of us as individuals hearing this message of the revelation of Jesus, each of us say, Lord, please come. Amen? Amen. Is that the cry of our hearts, church? Lord, please come back. The invitation is open for those who desire to quench the thirst that sin and death and distance from God create. In chapter 21, John had a vision of this river of life flowing forth from the throne of Christ. It is from these waters that the nations and the individuals within them will be fulfilled and satiated. It's a perfect picture of the peace that the Holy Spirit brings when we are raised anew in his baptism. But as we learned over the last few weeks of chapter 21 and 22, this adornment, this beauty process, this makeover, so to speak, that the Holy Spirit is doing, it is done through the very suffering that Revelation pictures. We are made beautiful in the crucible of suffering. You see, as we encounter the fiery trials of life, especially suffering that comes from the world's response to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, we have a choice to make. We have the choice to give in and cower to what the world tempts us to do and be so that we might belong in the world. Or... We have the choice to press further into Christ in prayer 
to press further in studying his word and to press further into loving and submitting to his people. For Christ's children will do just that when suffering comes. We will press in further, not pull back. And it is in submitting our fears and our hurts and our lamenting to him that he practically adjusts our hearts and molds us to be more like him. Many of us would like that that molding and conforming to just simply take place automatically with no struggle or trials. Does anybody else feel that way? You, you want to be changed with no problems. I like that idea. But friends, that is the prosperity gospel. That's not the word of God. The material way in which Christ answers our prayers to be sanctified and changed into his image is through sanctification in the midst of struggle. When life seems out of control, we learn to trust in him by purposefully going to him in prayer. That conforms us. When relational conflict comes, we learn how to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters and purposefully pursue reconciliation, even though it's hard. That conforms us. When persecution comes, we learn what sacrifice truly looks like because we purposefully rejoice in the fact that we're worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. That conforms us. And when spiritual disciplines that we know are good for us don't come easily, we know that Christ is building self-control as we purposefully push through our apathy to pursue him. That conforms us. Friends, Christ is using the trials, the suffering, the struggle, and conflict that comes in your life to sanctify you and adorn you with his character. And so this, and this is so you might be presented to him as part of his beautifully prepared bride. Brothers and sisters, don't resist these trials when they come. Instead, lean into them. Lean into Christ and lean into his people. You will be conformed because Jesus is faithful to do so. He has begun a good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete it. As we wait for Christ's return, we are to participate as the Spirit adorns the bride for the wedding day. And finally, lastly, through the warning we find at the end of Revelation, we realize that we are to stand fast in the lordship of Christ's word. Stand fast in the lordship of Christ's word. Let's read verses 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The language of this warning is similar to that found in Deuteronomy 4.2. There Moses uh, speaks, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Friends, one of the ways that we know that Christ is reigning as Lord of our lives, lives is if we revere and submit to his word. That's how you know he is your Lord. If the word reigns in your life. In our society today, and even in the church, it is common practice to blot out the portions of Scripture that we don't like or that don't make sense to us. 
It is common to dismiss those statements of Scripture that we think blemish the character of God. But friends, usually this is just a God that we or the society around us has decided is the appropriate, politically correct, and marketable God. It is not the true God. It is not the God of the Bible. It's a God of our own making. The Word of God does not give us the option to contort it to our own liking. For it is the Word of God that is the medium by which Christ exercises his lordship over his people. And so we must conform to it, not the other way around. To adjust it to our liking or the false theology of false teachers or the world is to undercut his lordship. It is to make ourselves lord in his place. The very thing that Jesus came to die and forgive us for. One of the things that Revelation does for us is it tests our view of the character of God. When Moses, back in Exodus, saw God's afterglow, God revealed his character to him. And this is what he said about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Friends, notice the balance, the perfect wholeness and balance of the compassionate and merciful God who saves his people and is ready to forgive with this fact that he is also the God who will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. In Revelation, we have seen the fullness of this balanced character of God played out in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. We see the lamb slain for those who were his enemies, and we see a lion ready to vindicate his saints. For Jesus has done everything, even giving his own life to save us and forgive us of our sins. But he is also just in that he will bring judgment on the world for its rebellion against its creator. Brothers and sisters, how we respond to the fullness of God's character in the midst of revelation tells us how we might be approaching his word. Have there been parts of Revelation that you've liked to avoid because it talks about judgment and hell? Are there parts that are hard because maybe you can easily see the God who judges, but you can't see the merciful God who's forgiven you? For we must see him as the fullness of who he is so that we might be conformed into his image, not the other way around. Minimizing certain portions of Scripture in favor of others conforms conforms him to our image, and that will only lead to destruction. And so, as the world calls for us to give up certain beliefs that have been orthodox for the entirety of God's people, and as the world calls for us to conform Jesus to its image, we are called to stand fast in the lordship of Christ's word until he returns. And friends, this will be difficult. You will be hated because he was hated first. But that does not revoke the call to stand fast in the lordship of Christ's word until he returns. For when he does, he will show you why he says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Verse 20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Church, arise. Your king is coming. He is coming soon. And until he comes in fullness, we are to worship the Lamb in all his glory. Stay alert and discern reality. Endure suffering while trusting in God's sovereignty. Pursue purity amidst compromise. Stand fast in the fight against hypocrisy. Testify as King Jesus has testified. Participate as the Spirit adorns the bride for the wedding day. And stand fast in the Lordship of Christ's word. Friends, if this seems like a lot, I want to remind you that all of this is possible because of the power that has been placed in you through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus. This list of applications is what God's people do. It's what naturally flows out of us because we have been saved and forgiven. And so we can stand firm knowing that because of Jesus' faithfulness, he will assist us to be faithful as we lean into him. And so this is the application that we can apply each day from now until our faith becomes sight and we no longer need symbolism to help us understand the beauty of Christ in eternity future. Who's looking forward to that day? Amen. Amen. For we will see him with our own eyes. The same John that wrote Revelation when writing his primary epistle to the church in Asia Minor said this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Friends, Revelation has revealed to us the sovereignty of Christ over all the kingdoms and the events of the church age. And so please join me in praying that, we, that what we have seen in Revelation would purify this church and cause us to pursue holiness more than we ever have as a church community. I hope that we might cry out loudly with John, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. As we finish Revelation, and as we jump into the book of Joshua next as a church, May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Amen. And now that we have finished the book of Revelation, I think it proper that we should end as we usually do after having read Scripture corporately together. Mission Fellowship, this is the word of our Lord. Let's now proclaim our common faith as we speak aloud together the Nicene Creed. Would you stand with me? And just read it with me. There are three screens. It's a little bit longer creed than the Apostles' Creed, but it is our common faith. And so we profess it now together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. 
Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the ease and the difficulty that has come from reading this book. We thank you, Lord, for drawing us more and more into understanding who you are as you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Without your gift of your word, we would be lost in our own sin. Without your regeneration of our hearts, we would be enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, blind to our own brokenness. And so today we gather as your people to give you all the glory for all that you have done. It is your work. And we pray, Lord, that as you work in our regenerate hearts by your spirit and as you work in this body of Christ, this small piece of the larger kingdom that you reign over, we pray, God, that you would conform us more into your image and that we would naturally do these applications that we talked about today, that they would simply flow out of our lives because of our great love for you. And so, Lord, as we step into communion now, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, remind us of the beauty and the weight of what we are about to participate in, and that you would declare yourself as our King and Lord. Father, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, and, or maybe they proclaim to know you, but their life shows no evidence of your Lordship, I pray, God, that you would bring conviction upon their heart, and that this would be the moment at which they could cry out to you and truly be joined to you by your regeneration. Lord, we thank you for this time. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.